In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and we ask you, O Lord, to be with us during this Bible study. Guide us and enlighten our hearts and our minds. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here is as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good evening, everybody. God willing, today we're going to continue studying the book of Genesis. Uh, we finished uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and today we're going to start with uh, Genesis chapter 2 and um, part of 3, most likely. Uh, so let's begin. Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Um, so in Genesis chapter 2, um, we start out with... Uh, you know, if you remember from last week, uh, Genesis chapter one was the creation account and chapter two speaks about um, the condition of man in paradise and goes into a little bit more uh, detail about the creation account itself. So we see a, like a little bit more things discussed uh, in the like details about what happened in chapter one that wasn't actually discussed in the first chapter. Okay. So it says, thus, said, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, speaking about the creation being finished in chapter one. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Okay, so we can what does it mean for God to rest, right? Because, you know, from our perspective as human beings, we know that we require rest after we do work because we become exhausted and tired from the work that we do. And so we need rest. But when we speak about God resting, what is it does it mean for God to rest? And so, um, sorry, here. Um, St. Augustine, he says this about the rest. He says, the rest of God means the rest of those who find rest in him, right? The rest of God means the rest of those who find rest in him, which means what? That the true rest of God is that when he sees that his beloved, his creation are enjoying the inner rest that comes from being in union with him. So essentially the thing that makes God restful and peaceful is when he sees that his children are enjoying him, are in relationship with him. Because we know that God did not actually stop creation, right? Like it's not like God uh, created for those six days and then now there is no creation and there is no more work that God is doing. We read in John 5, 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working, right? So there is the work of salvation. The work of salvation and all the works that God does and the work of sustaining the creation that God made is, is ongoing. Um, there, is a, there is a belief system called deism. Deism uh, is, a, is a group of people that believe in the existence of God, but they believe that God created everything at the beginning, and he set it into motion, and he set all of the laws and the rules of the universe and so on, and he just left it to go and run its course on its own, without any kind of intervention or interaction that he does in it, right? So that's deism. But it's clear from 
from from what we see in the scripture that God is working continually. God is, is always working. God is always speaking to his people. God is always interacting with us. God is always working the work of the Holy Spirit in us, right? Convicting and guiding and enlightening. So God continues to work. God continues to interact with the creation that he made. So the idea of God resting doesn't mean that God has become idle. It means that God is enjoying the fruit of the creation, which is that, that his creation are in union with him, are in relation with him. This is the rest of God, okay? Um, this is why when we speak about the Sabbath day, right, the true spiritual meaning of the Sabbath day, which was the day that God had set apart for the Jews not to work, it was not just the complete cessation of work. It wasn't just that everybody stays home and doesn't work. It was to find the rest in the Lord. It was to say that today is the day that God has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, right? I am joyful in this day. When we go to work and we serve and we spend maybe long hours in the church on a Sunday, this is not physically restful, right? I mean, it can be exhausting by the end of the day for someone who goes to church early Sunday morning and then, you know, leaves later in the day. This is not like, um, like physically restful, but it's spiritually restful. It's that we are finding our rest in the Lord. St. Augustine also says, we become ourselves a seventh day when we enjoy and get filled with God's blessings and sanctification, right? So we become rested. We become restful when we are filled with God's blessings, right? Um, also, it's, it's interesting to note that this is the day, in this day, he, he didn't say, and he didn't mention the evening and the morning in all the previous days of creation. He spoke about how the evening and the morning were the first day, or the evening and the morning were the second day. Here, St. Augustine says, we find no evening in the Sabbath because our rest has no end while the evening necessitates an end, right? So it's like this seventh day of rest is an ongoing rest. It's not just a, um, it's not just like a single day that has an end, but it's an ongoing rest in the sense that God has, wants us to remain restful in him, resting in him forever, right? This is, this is the status of man, right? There was no intention for the fall. There was no intention for us to be apart from God at any time. This is the way that God wanted man to live, which is in the seventh day of rest. Okay. So then he goes on in verse four and he says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Okay. So this is saying essentially there's, this is a brief recounting of the account with some more details. Okay. Before any plant of the field was, was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Okay, so, so before there, there wasn't rain, there was this mist that God had made to water the whole face of the ground. Okay, and... Um, and because the, this was before man, right? This is in preparation for the coming of man, the way that God had all of the plants to be watered, okay? Some people actually, they read this verse and they interpret it to mean that there was no rain at all, even from the time of Adam all the way until the time of Noah, right? Some people say this with the idea that at the time of Noah, um, when God says that he's going to send the flood, that, that the idea of rain was not even something that was understood or had never even been seen before 
of what does it mean for water to fall from the sky. Um, but we don't know this for sure. This is just an opinion of some people. Um, uh, but it is clear here that there was a time where he says there was no rain and there was no one to till the ground, but God is the one who sent this mist to water the face of the earth. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Okay. Here we can see two important aspects of man. Okay. The first part, it says, how is God forming the man? How is God forming the physical nature of the man? It says he formed him out of the dust, right? Out of the matter, out of the physical stuff, right? He took of the creation, which he had made, took it and formed it into something that is the, it has the, the form of a man, okay? But then after he formed the, 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 the body, okay, it says, and he breathed into its, his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So what gave life to the man was not the same as the physical matter. It was not that simply by forming the dust, the man out of the dust of the ground, that this in itself produced life in him. This is important because um, we see that the breath of life comes from God, right? Life is more than just a sum of the physical parts. Consciousness, self-awareness, right? We can say, who is the real you? What is the real you? Is, if, is the, what is it that can be removed from your body and yet you still remain you? Like, you know, let's say somebody loses their arms and legs. Well, they're still the same person. How much can be removed from you that you still remain you, right? So in the Christian faith, we believe that the real you is not even just your body alone, right? Because when our bodies die, we continue to exist. So there is an essence, there is a spirit, there is something that is beyond simply the physical nature of our bodies that defines our life, that defines our identity, defines our consciousness, that is the real us, right? So we are more than just the sum of our parts. This is very different than an atheistic worldview of life. Right, which believes that life is the product of all of the physical components of the body that come together to create the life. Okay, but in in the Christian worldview, we believe that it is more than just the physical. There is something beyond the, just the physical uh, components, and that is the real us. Right, the real us that continues to live even after our body dies. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. So God here is speaking in, in detail about the garden, right? We know the garden of Eden. What is in the garden, right? We know that God planted this garden. So it was designed by him. It was made by him. And he put there the man. So he, he made this garden, which was a, a, this good place, this place, this paradise. And he placed man in this garden. Okay. And what, how did God, or what did God put in the garden? It says, out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant for sight and for food. So anything that looked beautiful and anything that was useful for, to man and anything that man could eat from. Because remember, at this point, man was not eating anything but herbs and fruit. Right. So. So all of the trees that produced fruit that was good for man 
he placed there in the garden. And there was two special trees, okay? Two special trees in the midst of the garden. The first one was the tree of life, okay? And the second one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? So the tree of life, this tree is a source of life, right? The intent was is that if anyone would eat of this tree, then they would live forever. They would have eternal life. They would not die, okay? And this tree represents Christ, who is the source of life. He is the fountain of living waters. He is the one whom, when we partake of him, we live, right? So this tree of life is a representation of Christ. Then you have this other tree, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is this tree? This tree, that if man were to eat from it, he would gain this knowledge of the reality. He would gain a knowledge of the world. He would gain a knowledge of things that are mysteries and secrets and hidden. Both the things that are good and the things that are evil. Okay. St. Theophilus of Antioch, he says about this tree. Okay? He says the tree of knowledge is good in itself with good fruits. That tree had not carried death as some assume, but it is the rebellion that carried death inside it. There is nothing inside that fruit but knowledge alone that is good if used prudently, okay? So what St. Theophilus is saying about this tree is that, is that this tree is not bad. Actually, in the, in the same verse, it says, out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, right? So there is nothing about this tree that is inherently a wicked tree or a bad tree, okay? The idea of this tree is that it did provide something, right? And yet God had limited, right, access to this tree. God felt like they were not ready yet for this knowledge. Maybe at some point later in the future, God would have allowed them to eat of this tree to gain this knowledge. But they were not ready at this point. God said no to them. This is not a tree for you to eat from. So what St. Theophilus is saying is the fall of man did not happen because somehow death was inside of the fruit of this tree. But death happened because of the disobedience. Because man disobeyed God when they ended up eating of this tree of knowledge. So for instance, we can say about knowledge, Knowledge itself is neither good nor bad, right? What we do with it is what is either good or bad. Knowledge can have a negative effect on us, right? For instance, if we are vulnerable and weak, our reaction to certain knowledge might be harmful, right? For instance, we shelter our children from a lot of evil things because we know that they are not ready to understand it or to accept it. That if they were to learn about some of the evil things in the world, that it would become so difficult for them to understand and might cause them trauma. For instance, whereas someone who's experienced an understanding, if they were to hear of something like this, it wouldn't have the same effect on them necessarily, right? So knowledge doesn't have the same effect on everyone. Look at God himself, like God who knows everything, and yet he is not negatively affected because of the things that he knows. It is not something that is affecting him. So for instance, someone might learn of like a, <clears throat> a brutal crime that happened, and it might cause someone to go into depression, to be terrified, to be fixated with the crime, or even want to commit the crime, right? Whereas someone else might learn of that, and instead they might respond in a positive way. So the knowledge of evil can be very damaging, okay? And especially for Adam and Eve, which are now in a state of innocence that they are in, that God did not want them to know of this evil. But the death itself is not in the tree. Right? The death happened because of their disobedience in eating from the tree. Okay?
Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekiel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth is the Euphrates. Okay. So there is no consensus. Uh, sorry. There is no consensus uh, as to where exactly this garden was. But we do believe that this garden was on the earth, right? It's not, this isn't like a garden that was in heaven, for instance. Adam and Eve, they had physical bodies that were created from dust and God placed them in his creation that he had just made, which is the earth, right? So we believe that this garden is somewhere on earth. Some people assume that it was in Armenia, which is where the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers originate, which are mentioned here. Um, uh, most people believe that the river uh, of Eden is the one that parted into four riverheads, uh, was the river Euphrates uh, the, uh, and Tigris that flows into the Arabian bank and then into the Persian Gulf, which then parted into several uh, different rivers, okay? This would place it somewhere in uh, the southern part of Iraq would be the, the location of this. But clearly right now there is no evidence of it. There is, there is no remnant of it. There is nothing that we can go and see that this is in fact the location, this is just kind of speculation where people think it might have been. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Okay, so God gave man a job. Right? He, he didn't just tell him, go into the garden and enjoy your life and just be joyful there. He said, yes, you will go and be joyful and you will, you will have, you know, en enjoyment in the garden itself, right? Because as we said before, God put the trees that were you know, beautiful to behold, right? And they were good for food. So, so God, man was going to enjoy this garden, right? But he also, God gave man uh, a, a job to do, which was to tend and to keep this garden. It wasn't just a paradise, but he had some responsibility and authority there. So there was an innate need for humans to have a purpose and a function, not just to enjoy, but to feel needed, right? If you think about us today, people who maybe are out of work, feel, have any responsibility, feel like they have no purpose. They have, they're, they're not needed by anyone or for any reason, right? Even from the very beginning, God gave Adam a reason for being alive, a reason for living, something to do, something to be done. And this work that God called Adam to do, it wasn't um, a toilsome work. Like it wasn't a difficult work. It was, it was a work that he enjoyed. It was something that he would be good at. It was something fulfilling. It was something that he felt like he had this natural ability to do. Later on after the fall, the work that Adam had to do to till the ground and to bring food from it was toilsome, as we'll see in the next chapter um, at the fall. But, but at this stage, right, the, the work that God gave Adam to do was joyful. St. Augustine, he says, although man was placed in paradise so as to work and guard it, that praiseworthy work was not toilsome, for the work in paradise is quite different from the work on the earth to which he was condemned after the sin. Okay. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, 
for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so God gave the man freedom, right? And, and a lot of people ask about this, um, you know, why is it that God gave man the choice to, to, to sin, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we know that Adam eventually ate from, right? God gave man freedom, right? He placed boundaries on his freedom, but he gave him freedom. And this is, um, this is the way that God gives freedom, right? God gives us the choice. God gives us to be the ones to decide. He gives us warnings. He tells us what is true and what is false. He, he, he makes sure that we are not ignorant of what's happening around us. And then he says, you choose. I have placed before you life and death. Choose life, right? So, so here it is now up to him, up to Adam, because God had already made everything perfect. God had made everything to fulfill the needs of Adam. God had put Adam in the, in the Garden of Eden. God had put all these fruits and trees and everything in the garden. And everything was set for Adam, right? And he's telling him this command. And he's saying, of every tree of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, okay? And he says, what, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Not because the, the tree is poisonous, but because if you eat of it, then you are disobeying my command. Okay, and so he's even telling him, this is what will happen to you. It wasn't something that was unknown to Adam. Maybe Adam didn't fully comprehend what does it mean to die because nothing had ever died and Adam didn't know what death was, right? And yet, he, 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 God made sure that Adam understood that there would be a very bad consequence to eating of that tree. Uh, John of Damascus, uh, he said, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the power of discernment by multidimensional vision. This is the complete knowing of one's nature. Of itself, it manifests the magnificence of the creator, and it is good for them that are full grown and have walked in the contemplation of God. It is not good, however, for such as are still young and are more greedy in their appetites. So John of Damascus, he's saying exactly what we said before. He's saying, he's saying that as this point in time, Adam and Eve did not yet have the discernment and the understanding to be able to learn all of this knowledge of good and evil that would have been imparted to them by eating of this tree. So the tree is not bad in itself, but they were simply not ready to eat of it. And there would have been a time, perhaps later, where God would have allowed this, and yet the time had not yet come. Okay. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, I will make a helper comparable to him. So after all of the creation had been done, okay, up until this point, and we know that after each day of the creation, God said it was good, it was good, it was good. And then after all the creation, God looked and said it was very good. And yet here we see God is, is pointing out something that was not good. And here the thing that was not good is that this man, Adam, that God had created would be alone. Right. And so God said, I will make a helper. I will make someone that is like him. I, I, all of the existing creation is below Adam. Right. Because all of the animals and the plants and the fish and the birds and all that stuff. These are creatures that are less than Adam that are not like Adam. And so they were not able to be suitable companions to Adam. So God says, I'm going to create another person. I'm not going to create another helper who is comparable to Adam, who is equal with Adam, who has, this, who has the same, um, you know, abilities as Adam, okay? And that is, will be a companion for him. 
So we see here from the beginning, the idea that God is saying that it is not good that man should be alone. It means that man is created with this in, innate desire for relationship, that, that a human being cannot simply be living in isolation with no relationship. There has to be a relationship to someone. Even when we speak about uh, monastics that go and live in solitude in the desert, the reason that they can live in solitude is because they have a relationship with God. Right. That is the relationship. There has to be a relationship. And so here, Adam, God did not want him to be by himself. And of course, we know that the, the, the procreation, right, the continuing of the human being, God made it to happen through this relationship between the man and the woman. Right. So this relationship was good for many reasons. It wasn't only good because it brought joy and companionship between Adam and Eve, but it actually was useful and functional. In the sense that God is going to give man the ability to further the creation, which is really an amazing thing when you think about it, right? When we speak about how, how man is created in the image of God, God is the one at this point that has created everything. Nothing came to be that was not created by God. And yes, even though God continues to create, and even all the human beings that came after, yes, God is the one who created them, but but. But Adam and Eve participate, that human beings participate in this process of the creation in the sense that it is through them, it is through their work that God produces more people, right? So this was another reason why God wanted there to be uh, another uh, helper comparable to Adam. God was not simply going to just keep creating people from the dust, right? He says, no, now that you too have been created, all the other people are going to come from you. And the idea of being comparable means that she is equal with him, not better and not worse. But it doesn't mean that she is identical. Because clearly we see when God created Eve, he created her different than Adam. She looked different. She had a different function. She came after him. She, she was not created directly from the dust, but she was created from the side of Adam, which we will see. So, so even though she is comparable and she is equal, but doesn't mean she is identical. She is not exactly like him. She has a different role. She has a different function. She has a different personality. She has a different way about her than Adam. Okay. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave name uh, so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So of all of these um, animals, Adam is naming them. God is honoring the names. God is giving to Adam this authority. He says, even though I am the creator, but I'm giving you the authority to participate in this. Name the animals. Manage the world, right? Um, but like it said, there wasn't any one of these animals, any of these other creation that God made that was comparable to Adam. And the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, so Adam himself, when he saw Eve, whom God had created from him, 
okay? He recognized that she was like him. She, he recognized when he says this, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, okay? So, so even though she was different, right, than him, but he recognized that she was, she was from him, that she was the same as him, that she was equal to him and, and, and like him much more than any of the other creation that God had already made. Okay? So then God goes on and he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Um, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Sorry, I haven't been. Okay. So the idea of marriage, right? The idea of the union between uh, the man and the woman is something that was ordained and created in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't something that came afterward. It wasn't something that was like a consequence of the fall, that now after the fall, people are living in a different way in this corrupted fallen state and that procreation is happening, you know, like, like a different way. Here, the idea of the union between the, the man and the woman was something that was ordained by God even before the fall happened and that they were, they were to be united together and to become one flesh. And this is why marriage is this mystical sacrament. Right, because it's a sacrament. Because from the outside, these two people still look like they are two people, and yet, from a spiritual perspective and the way that God sees them, He sees them as being one flesh. This is why there is a sacramental union. This also shows that there is no barriers between them. Right, they were completely open, so they were both created. They were naked. They were there was no barriers between them. They were completely open and vulnerable with each other. There was no fear. There was no blame. There was, there was no conflict between them, right? They were in perfect unity, whether it be physical unity or emotional unity or in whichever way they were united together, right? And this was the beginning. This was the first family, right? This was the beginning of the family unit that God wanted there to be um, from the very beginning to, uh, you know, propel the species forward, okay? So that's chapter two. Okay, so now we'll go on to chapter three. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Um, so God is saying this or sorry, the serpent is saying this, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so this is the first time we see the serpent, right? We haven't seen this character of the serpent before. And it says about him that he is more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord had made. He is more cunning. He's more deceptive than any beast of the field that the Lord had made. And we know that this serpent is the devil, okay? So Satan, after seeing all of this creation, after seeing all the things that God had made, and after seeing the creation of the human being, and how God is fulfilling all the needs of the human being, he is now stirred with envy. He is now stirred with seeing an opportunity. Because as we said before, God, uh, the devil is the one who hates God, right? 
we are just kind of collateral damage in this fight of the devil against God. The devil wants to attack us because he knows that this is going to ruin God's creation. He knows that this is going to ruin God's plan because God loves us and, he, and God doesn't want us to be harmed. And so the devil comes to attack us to hurt God. Okay? So the Satan is stirred in his envy against us after seeing all the good things that God has made for us. Okay? And so he begins to have this conversation with the woman. Okay? And he begins and he starts quoting God's words. Okay? That's the very first, the very first sentence in the whole scripture where the devil says anything. Okay, is what? It's quoting God, okay, which is very telling, right? Because this is the way that God, that the devil deceives us. This is the way that the devil deceives us. If the devil tells us something that is like so 100% contrary to what we know is right, then we will easily dismiss him out of hand, right? We will easily dismiss him. But if he begins to tell us things that sound right, and then maybe begins to twist those things, or to, you know, to, 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 to make us kind of not understand what is it that God actually meant or to turn us against God, even using his own words, then he begins to get into this dialogue with us and can easily deceive us, okay? And so this was the first mistake that Eve made is she's about to now engage in a conversation with the devil, okay? St. John Chrysostom says about this, <clears throat> he says, she should have kept silent and should not have conversed with it, meaning the serpent. She foolishly revealed God's commandment. So giving the devil a great break, consider the extent of evil when we deliver ourselves in the hands of our enemies and those who plot against us. That is why the Lord Christ says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. That is what happened with Eve. She gave what is holy to dogs and swine. So they trampled them under their feet, turned and tore the woman. So essentially by her even engaging in this conversation with the devil, she is giving him more ammunition to twist uh, her words and to twist God's commandment in order to benefit him. Okay. So again, he said, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now he took the the words of God, because in fact, he did say, you shall eat of every tree of the garden. But then he said, except, right, except the, these, this one tree, right? So he took the first part of the commandment and he left the second part. And, and maybe to many who don't fully understand the word of God, right, we can be deceived by saying, oh, well, God is preaching this and this, right, which is true. But maybe it doesn't apply in all situations. Maybe maybe there is a limit to what God has said. Maybe there's exceptions to what God has said. Maybe maybe we, we have to understand what God has said in the right context for us to apply his word properly. But because we lack discernment and understanding, then we are easily deceived, right, by the devil, which could come in the form of maybe not a serpent, right, but maybe could come in the form of, you know, in the media, could come in the form of other people, could come in the form of other teachings, right? that then begin to play with our understanding, okay? And the woman said to the serpent, okay, so now she is having this dialogue with him. We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So she is now 
recounting what her understanding is of the commandment that God had made. Okay. But if you notice here, she added something that wasn't there in the original command, right? Because God told her, uh, told the man, Adam, who then explained this to his wife after she was formed, is that you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't say anything about you shall not touch the tree, right? He didn't say anything about touching the tree. He just said, do not eat of the tree, right? So here, even when she is quoting her understanding of what's happening to the devil, she's beginning to, to like, there's a distorted view here. What, what does this have to do with touching, right? God didn't say touching. God said eating, okay? So here, again, this conversation is continuing. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, right? You will not surely die. God said the words, you shall surely die. And the serpent is saying the words, you shall not surely die. So it's, it's very like critical here to see that the devil is using God's own words and he is directly contradicting them. The exact words, right? But in reverse. And this is the way that we can recognize when the devil is speaking. Because when the devil is speaking, he is going to contradict God's words. A lot of times, maybe we are tempted to do something that is that is against God's command. And but we don't really we're not thinking about it. We're just thinking, well, what should I do? Should I do this or should I do that? Well, the answer is, is it against God's command or not? How is it that I can do something against God's command and it be God's will? Sometimes maybe people are put in a situation where, let's say, I have a job opportunity. But in order for me to get that job opportunity, I have to be deceptive or I have to tell a little lie or I have to do something that is immoral in order to get it. And yet I'm convinced that this job opportunity is the job opportunity that has been given to me by God, that this is the answer to my prayers, that this is the way to a better life, that this is what I've been looking for. And God wants this for me. But in order for me to get it, it's not going to come straight to me. I have to do a little bit of work myself which is to deceive, which is to lie, which is to do something a little bit immoral in order to get it, okay? This is a, an example that maybe some of us have faced. Well, this is exactly the situation here that Eve is in, right? If, if we have to go against what God has said, right, then it is not from him. It is not from God. It is my own desires. It is my own thinking. It is because I want something, not because God wants it for me, right? Um, so it kind of brings to mind King David, you know, King David, uh, when he had an opportunity to kill Saul, okay, and, and because he, he happened by coincidence to find Saul in a cave sleeping. And so all of King David's men came to King David and they told him, look, God has delivered him into your hands. All you have to do is kill him while he is sleeping and then you will take the kingdom. And this is what God wants you to do. Because you are the rightful king. God has said that you are to be king. And because you are to be king, and he's given you this opportunity to go kill Saul and become king. And actually, that would have been much easier for King David because he was running for his life for a long time from Saul. So in every way, what King David's men were telling him made a lot of sense, right? You are the rightful king. God wants you to be king. And he knew that for a fact that God wanted him to be king. And here, God has allowed Saul to be vulnerable and asleep there in this cave that he didn't even know you were in the cave go kill him go kill him and become king and and this is this is from the hand of god but king david's response was no i cannot because king saul 
is the anointed of God. He is the king as of right now. And I cannot go murder the man, right? So King David had this very sensitive conscience that, that he knew that this was wrong, even though he knew that it was God's will for him to be king, but this was not the way, right? This was not the way. I can't do something that is against God's command and then attribute it to say, oh, no, no, but God wants me to do this. God is never going to contradict what he said, right? God is never going to contradict what he said. And here the devil is, is, is using these contradictory words to describe what God is saying, right? St. John Chrysostom, he says, how is it fitting for man to recognize an enemy and opponent except by such answer that contradicts the words of God? It was more fitting for Eve to escape right away from the bait and to retreat from the snare. That once she realized that this, this serpent who was speaking to her was lying to her, that she would not even entertain the rest of the conversation, but that she would flee immediately because she cannot, uh, she should have recognized that he was evil. And that's the other thing is sometimes we think that we can, um, we can uh, have this conversation with temptation, have this conversation with the devil and somehow overcome it. But clearly we can see here in, the, in Eve's case that she came to have this conversation and she lost, right? There was no way, way for her because he is so deceptive and he offers us really truly what we desire in our hearts that is so tempting for us that we cannot resist it, okay? Here also, what is it that the devil is attacking? The devil is not just attacking like the facts of what is it that God has said. He's attacking the character of God. Right, because he's going to go here in the next verse, um, and he's going to speak about this. Right, the devil made Eve to doubt the goodness of God; that he doesn't actually want what's best for her. Here in verse five, it says, "For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." Right? Why is it that God doesn't want you to eat of this? Right? It's because he doesn't want you to to be a comp competition to him. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be God. And so he knows that this is something that is good for you, right? But he's keeping it from you. He's holding out on you, right? He, he doesn't want you to be like him, right? So she, he made her to begin to doubt God's character. Well, maybe God isn't so good. Yeah, I mean, God created all of these things, but maybe, she is, maybe he isn't so good at all, right? Maybe it's something that... Um, that all along, he's just manipulating me. And he doesn't really want what's best for me. The thing that God is saying actually doesn't make sense, right? I need to take things into my own hands and to do what I think is right. St. John Chrysostom says, the devil did not offer any good deed, few or much, but deceived the woman with mere words and provided her with vain hope. Despite that, she considered the devil more trustworthy than God, although God had proved his goodwill through his deeds, right? So we can ask this question, right? And I want you to, to think about it and give me an answer like in the chat window. Why, if, if, if what Eve knew about God was that there were so many good things that he had done, he, she knew that he had created the world. She knew that he created Adam. She knew that he created her. She knew that he created all of the trees and everything to eat. So there is so much evidence that he is doing good for her and for Adam, right? So why is it? that she would be so quick to believe a serpent whom she had never seen and never known that was that had never done anything good for her that was directly contradicting what is it that God had said. Why do you think 
that she would be so quick to believe what the devil had to say. You can just type your answer in the chat. Okay, somebody says, because she didn't know what evil is. Okay, maybe she didn't know what evil is, but she knew that what the serpent was saying was directly opposite to what God was saying. And so she knew that there was two different things that were contradictory and she and only one of them could be true. So why would she believe the one that came from someone that had no history of goodness in him? No, no, no good relationship with him. Nothing good came from him. Why would you believe that one instead of God? Anybody have any answers? Okay, think about this. Was God visible? Yeah, I mean, she knew of God's existence. And actually, later on, we see about how God is walking with them in the garden. So let me ask this. Okay, usually when, when someone is provided with two different uh, like pieces of advice that contradict, maybe we can put ourselves in a situation where we have a decision to make and we ask people, and some people give us one advice, some people give us the other advice. We might find ourselves in a situation where I actually have my own desire, right? Like I'm not just passionate, you know, passionlessly, objectively going and surveying different people's opinion. And then I say, okay, whichever one <coughs> is held by more people or whatever way that I'm gonna do. No, actually I have my own desire as well. Oftentimes, Maybe I have my desire and then I get advice and everybody advises me against what it is that I want to do, but I, yet I find myself doing it anyway, right? Because it's what I want. And, and maybe sometimes when we seek advice from people, we're not seeking advice because we really want advice, but because we want confirmation to feel like I'm justified in doing what I want. And some people maybe find others that will agree with them and that those are the people that they were seek advice from because they want to feel like they are right and good in making the decision that they already want to make. So we can't discount the idea here that Eve has her own desire, right? In James chapter one, it says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sorry, and when it is full grown, brings forth death. Right? When desire has conceived, it brings birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So we are what tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires. So, And this is what the devil does. The devil sees the desires that we already have. He sees the desires that we have, and he knows our weakness. So he sees what is it that we already want, and he offers it to us. And he offers it to us in an enticing way that will lead us away from God. And this is exactly what the serpent did here. He knew that internally Eve 
had this desire to be like God, that the creation wants to be the creator, that the creation wants to believe that they have the power of the creator, that I don't need the creator, that I can be a replacement for the creator, right? And so he offered it to her. And so even though he said to her what is exactly contrary to God, and even though there was no evidence of his trustworthiness, there was no evidence of his love or goodness, and yet she believed it because she wanted to listen to her own desire. And what this enemy, what this serpent was saying to her was exactly matching what she herself really wanted. Okay. Someone said she couldn't say no to the devil. In other words, she couldn't say no. If we eat from this tree, we will surely die. Yeah, she didn't say no. She didn't argue. Like she didn't, she didn't respond and say, no, you are wrong. She just accepted, right, what he had to say. So immediately in the next verse, okay, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay. So it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. So how is she determining that the tree was good for food? She determined it based on her senses, right? She determined it based on her senses. Yeah, somebody just posted the devil was tending her with what she really wanted. Exactly, right? So, so her senses told her that there's nothing wrong with this tree, right? God is the one who said, if you eat of this tree, you will die. But the death was not in the tree. The death was in the disobedience. So she is now analyzing the situation in her own mind. She's saying there is nothing wrong with this tree. It looks like all of the other trees. It has good fruit on it like all the other trees, right? And there's some knowledge of good and evil that comes with it, right? So it's even better in her mind than the other trees. So instead of trusting what is it that God had said about the tree, she just looked at it with her senses and her senses did not give her any warning, right? It was pleasant to the eyes. It was pleasant to the senses. It was pleasurable, right? This is, this is exactly this kind of pattern of sin that we fall into. We go after sin because it's pleasurable. We go after sin because even though we know God has said that certain things are wrong, that certain things are damaging, that certain things lead to death, and yet my senses tell me, oh, this is pleasurable. This is pleasant to the eyes. It's something that I desire to do, right? And then it's also a tree desirable to make one wise, meaning I can be as wise as God. I can know what God knows. I can be like as discerning as him. I can be God myself, right? So in all of these desires that were really inside of her and all these excuses that she made and all the ways that she just used her senses, right? Instead of trusting in what, in what God's words were, it says what? She took of its fruit and ate, right? She took of its fruit and ate. And so she was bold enough to go and take of the fruit. But that didn't just didn't end there. It says, then she also gave to her husband with her and he ate, okay? So Adam here is being tempted, but Adam was not being tempted directly by the serpent, right? Adam is being tempted by Eve. Eve is the one who was deceived by the serpent and Adam was deceived by the words of his wife, right? So, so Adam gave in to temptation just as much as Eve did, but the source of temptation was different, right? So, so when we ourselves are tempted by evil, 
and, and are practicing bad habits and bad practices, we then become a source of temptation to other people, right? Other people that we then attract to sin because of our sin. And this is, this is really when we start getting into something very, very dangerous, where it's not only that my actions are affecting my own salvation, but my actions are affecting the salvation of others, which is why we have to be very careful with what we offer to others, what we speak about as being good to others, what is the, the example and the role model that we are to others, because the way we are is the way that other people will, will be, right? They are influenced by us, especially those people who are directly under our authority, like our children, for instance, right? Someone who is very, very much affected by me, that they become very similar to me in many ways. What, what am I teaching them, right? Am I teaching them good principles or am I teaching them otherwise? right? Christ was also tempted, right? And here we can see the, the, diff, the distinction between um, the first Adam and the second Adam. St. Paul always speaks about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam, he was the one through whom we inherited death, right? We became dead through the first Adam who fell into sin, right? But through the second Adam, when he was tempted by the devil, he did not give in. He was the second Adam who, through him, we inherit eternal life. So the second Adam restored all that the first Adam lost. Whereas the first Adam gave in to the temptation, the second Adam was able to overcome the temptation. And here we see that Eve, even though when God made her, that he considered her to be a helper, right? He said to her, he said to, that, that what it is not good for man to be alone and that I need to create a helper comparable to him. And yet, what is it that this helper has done at this point? Eve, we cannot call her a helper at this point. She has done nothing to help Adam, but instead she is the one who offered him this fruit, which then led him to death. He also forsook his role as leader, right? He forsook his, his role. Actually, when you read earlier in the chapter about when God is giving the warning to Adam about the tree, okay, this was before, right? This was before the creation of Eve, right? This was uh, when, he, when he was speaking about, uh, this is in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, when he said um, in verse 17, Genesis 2, 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Who, who was this said to? It was said to Adam before Eve had even been created at this point. So in order for Eve to know, right, the law considering, concerning this tree, it was because Adam had to tell her, right? Adam had to tell her when she was formed from him, he told her, this is what happened. God came and he told me about these trees. And he said, this tree is the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat from it. So Adam is the one who was responsible to make sure that she understood the command. But even he who directly heard from the mouth of God, what is it that should be done? That even if Eve were to have disobeyed this command and come to him and offered this fruit to him, that he should have been the one to say, no, I cannot eat of this. God is the one who commanded God. Adam should have been a one, the one leading his wife to the truth. He is the one who knew the commandment. And he is the one who shared it with her. And so he should not have allowed this to happen to begin with. And certainly if he, uh, if she offered it to him, he shouldn't have accepted it from her, right? And yet, instead of her being a helper to support him, she became the one leading him to destruction, 
right? Because he allowed this to happen. He forsook his own role as the leader, as the one who knew the truth and allowed himself to be led into sin. And so here in this first six verses of chapter three, we see the, the, the consummation of the fall of man uh, happening immediately after the creation. We, we don't see how there was a long period of time necessarily where, where Adam and Eve were living in harmony there in the garden. But we see that even before um, you know, any other human beings were procreated, were, were, were born, that from the very, very beginning, the, the time that man had in this garden was not very long. We don't know how long it was, but we, don't, we have no evidence to show that it was a very long time. And so they forsook this garden that God had made for them which satisfied all of their needs because they felt like there was something else that they were missing, that they wanted, that it wasn't enough for them, even though God gave them everything. And yet they believed it wasn't enough. They had this desire inside their hearts to be like God, to be like the creator. And so they neglected everything else good and they placed their trust in the serpent because he was echoing the same words that they already had in their hearts, which that they wanted more. Than what they had they were not content with what it is that they had so this is a good stopping point for today and god willing next time we'll start to speak about what is the consequences of the fall now that after they had committed the sin um, are there any questions or comments before we conclude Yes, Mina. So, 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 let me explain. Let me explain. Oh, what I meant. I meant. <clears throat> I meant. In other words, Eva. 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 Okay, so Eva was 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 unable to say no to the devil because 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 the. I mean, God. Eve, because Eve didn't understand the commandment from God compared to Adam. Adam understood the commandment very well, but 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 on the other hand, Eve Eve actually didn't understand what the commandment was. Thank you, Mina. Um, I, I would say that she did understand the commandment, but she was quick to forsake it or to believe that it, it wasn't as serious an issue as, as it was, because she quoted to the devil the commandment, and she said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So she understood that God had said those words, right? She, she, understand, she understood that God said, you shall not eat it, which was the bottom line. And she, the only way she knew this was because Adam had told her. But, but it was just a, a commandment that didn't carry much weight with her because in her internal desire was to eat of it. Her internal desire was to eat. And so when anyone gave her any excuse or any reason to doubt, to think that maybe this is not true, then she immediately jumped on it because it already echoed what she already wanted in her heart, which was to eat of the fruit. Okay, thank you, everybody. Uh, let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask you, O Lord, to be with us and to help us to understand and to discriminate your word 
and to apply it in our lives and to always be joyful and see how your presence with us and your redemptive power working to bring us back, O Lord, from the fall that we had fallen in sin away from you and to draw closer to you and to flee from the temptation of the devil. Help us, O God, to know ourselves, to know, O Lord, the voice of the deceiver when he speaks to us, to flee from him and to draw closer to you, O Lord, at all times. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.